Welcome to How to In Bed, the ultimate guide to unlocking your full sexual potential. Join me, Lara, an erotica writer and the creator of the sexual wellness platform Tales of Lara, as I spin new tales of sexual exploration with leading experts. Together, we'll unravel the mysteries of cultivating deep, intimate connections with insights like unlocking the secrets of lasting love and channeling your inner dominatrix. Let's dive into How to Embed with Lara, where pleasure has no boundaries. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Pussy Church in our new series, How to Embed. Today, I'm here with couples therapist and author, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, for our episode, How to Save and Deepen Your Relationship. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. I said it on the top of the show already or before we started recording how much I am inspired by your work. What made you or what inspired you to write this book, Loving Bravely, or to become a couples therapist in general? I think that I grew up watching the big people that I loved and needed. You know, I watched them in a lot of pain and struggle. And as the mm. oldest daughter, I think I felt a kind of, you know, responsibility and uh, for things that I, you know, I, I felt probably overly responsible, you know, for yeah. for them, for trying to help them. And as, of course, as a kid, I couldn't be very helpful. So I know part of my work is healing that little version of me. But I also grew up, you know, planted in front of Oprah Winfrey's show every week and, you know, fascinated by the world of relationships and relationship dynamics. And I went to graduate school. I didn't know um, when I started my doctoral training, I didn't know that I wanted to work with couples. But as I kind of stumbled into that work, I realized it was a perfect space for me to understand gender and power and vulnerability and emotions. And I love the challenge of working with couples. It is not easy work. It is oh, not for the I faint imagine. of heart. You know, I'm <laughs> 20 plus years in and I still feel like I learn every day from my couples. And I feel like there's still growth that I'm doing as a couples therapist. So it's been a really rich, you know, career for me, for sure. How does it differentiate between individual therapy and couples therapy? Like, what would you say is like the biggest difference? Mm. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot to people about is, is if you are going to hire a couples therapist, I really want you to ask that potential therapist what their training is mm. in working with couples. Because because being an excellent individual therapist and being an excellent couples therapist are not the same thing. It is really different. You know, when I, and I do, I do individual work as well. When I'm working individually, you know, I'm, I'm in that person's corner and there's an ease and a mm. back and forth that there is in a one-on-one -on -one <laughs> conversation. And when I'm with a couple, really the system is my client. The relationship is my client, which does yes. not mean I will advocate for the relationship, you know, if it is not in the service of either or both of them, but it does mean that the system, you know, my my work is in the space between them. And so a good couples therapist, so there's a kind of like gravitas in leadership that one has to take um, with a couple that's pretty different than with an individual. It's interesting. Um, I've been in couples therapy before, and I think the first nearly uncomfortable thought is like, is the therapist now on my side or on his side? You know, <laughs> like, am I winning this uh -huh. session or am oh, I losing right. this is session? Does she like me more or yeah. does she like him more? Totally. <laughs> yeah, I think there is such a pull for couples, for, for people in couples therapy to really feel like their therapist 
is on their side. I think that that urge to be like, can you just referee? Can you just be the judge? <laughs> yeah. Can you just tell us? You know, and of course, that's not our that's not a couples therapist job. Yeah. What are the greatest challenges that people are coming in with? Like what makes people want to come to you and seek support? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that at, at any given moment, about half of the couples that I'm in, I'm doing therapy with, about half of them are in recovery from infidelity. Mm. So, you know, which I, I think in some ways is because infidelity is common. But I think mostly what that indicates is that couples will <laughs> wait for a very long time before they reach out for help. I think we've done a great job destigmatizing individual therapy, yeah. but I think couples therapy is still shrouded in a lot of shame. And so I spend a lot of time encouraging couples therapy early and often and to go the first time your partner asks you to go because... Not that if you don't, you're going to get cheated on. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm <laughs> no. just saying that, you know, pro like relationship problems tend not to resolve on their own. And very yeah. often something as dramatic as a breach of trust, like infidelity, is a symptom of, you know, conflict or distance or uh, um, pain that has not been tended to that now is coming out in this, you know, really pretty extreme way. I wonder if people don't go to couples therapy also because there's this like, I need to make this work. And it's kind of a, a reflection of how good I am as a person, if I can make this relationship work by myself and like maybe yeah. like giving into a couples therapist, people feel like they've failed or something. I think that's, yeah. I mean, I think that you're spot on. There's so much romantic mythology yes. you know, about if it's work, it's wrong and mm. it should be easy. And so you're right. I think that then couples therapy becomes a kind of personal failure, probably in some gendered ways, right? Like for her, and it, you know, it's it sort of heteronormatively speaking, for yeah. her, maybe the personal failure is like, I can't fix this on my own. And for him, the personal failure might be, I can't make her happy, you know, mm, or interesting, you know, yeah. I'm weak. So I suspect there's different, different sort of painful stories that underlie that. But I think you're right that couples therapy can feel like a sign of personal failure or relational failure when in reality, it's a sign of strength, if you ask me. <laughs> I think so, too. And I think there's something so proactive and actually strong and powerful about being like, hey, honestly, I want this to work. I love you. And therefore, I reach out and get some help because yeah. I'm really invested in, in this relationship that we have. Is that how you experienced your couples therapy, if I can ask? something yeah i mean my couples therapy i mean i think we had maybe a little bit of what you described um waiting until <laughs> when it's really difficult already mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i think that made it challenging because i feel like a lot of time is spent on kind of rehashing things that have already happened and yeah. the fallouts from them and kind of, but the really positive aspect of it is having, or was having the space where these things can be processed. Hmm. I think a lot of things were just so, so much in an argument and in a back and forth that it was easier with somebody else to just have the space to be listened to and to listen yeah. and to get a different perspective to then actually process through the pain and like yes. find a way to listen to yeah. each other. Yeah, sometimes whether, I mean, it doesn't have to be infidelity, but sometimes that like last straw doesn't mean the end or we're so desperate, it can be that we are finally cracked open enough that we mm. will humble ourselves enough to say, yes. maybe there's another way and maybe, right. And that is, 
because it is. I mean, I think even like having the same argument over and over again, that becomes kind of self-perpetuating. Like we we feel like the only thing we can do is go round and round and round. And so because we, we have these filters that lead us to hear our partner in a particular way, mm-hmm. and even, if it's not, <laughs> even if, it's not, if it's not that what they're saying, we are so primed to hear it that way that we actually cannot imagine another way of hearing it until there's been an intermediary there who's saying, yeah. hang on a minute. Let me try and see what happens if I help them say it differently. And let me try and see what happens if I help you hear this differently. And that's pretty, that's pretty powerful that that's... It is. I just had that experience so much where I felt like I can't even imagine him, in this case, meaning it differently. You know, right. I, you know, I'm like, how would you mean that? Differently? It makes no sense that this could be meant in any different kind of way <laughs> or done because of any kind of different intention than like yeah. to, hurt, to hurt me or something. You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and that's what I mean, that is just so key, like to to be able to bring that kind of curiosity, because that that takes curiosity, totally. the act of like just even putting that baby toe in and the and the idea of even entertaining this alternative hypothesis about why your partner acts the way they act. It's so freaking courageous. I tell you what, I spend most of my day with couples, like with tears in my eyes, because it's so brave what people are, you know, willing to do with each other because it's not easy. No, it really isn't. And I think, I wonder if you experienced this, do many people not really know why they got to where they got to in their relationships? Yeah, for sure. Well, for sure. Certainly, like again, when it's, when it's infidelity, yes. you know, for the, the betrayed partner feels like, who the hell am I married to? But the person who's cheated oftentimes also feels like, I, I don't know how this happened. Like, how yeah. did I, if you would have asked me X number of years ago, I would have told you, whatever. I had this belief and this belief about infidelity, you know, very, unless you're a sociopath, you don't go into <laughs> infidelity feeling like you're psyched about your life choices. It sort of is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it ends up being this like whatever slippery slope that gets crossed, you know, over time. But yeah, that is, I think people do get confused about how did we end up here. And part of it's, you know, I think what can be frustrating when you start couples therapy is that the couples therapist, you know, you're in chapter eight of your story, but your couples therapist is in (laughs) chapter one of your story. And so it can feel annoying and frustrating and kind of sluggish to have to go and tell your story from the beginning and not just the story of your marriage, but like your whole story. Like I, as a couples therapist, I need to know I need a, a family tree. I need to understand this family system that you grew up in. So we're starting all the way the hell back. And that can be frustrating for people because they're in pain and they want to work on their pain now. But the thing that's also true is that in the process of storying yourself, watching your partner story themselves and storying your relationship, that process is not just to help your therapist, but it also gives you and your partner a chance to stand a bit differently inside of your Mm. stories, inside of each other's stories. So it's like the treatment starts right away. The help starts right away. The shift starts right away. Even though all you're doing for the first four sessions is talking about, you know, where you went to school and what your <laughs> mom's deal was and, you know, Definitely, how yeah. the two of you <laughs> met. But all of that is necessary and it all creates, you know, the early, early shift. You talk about relational self-awareness. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit what that means and how that would look like for somebody even if they don't necessarily go to couples therapy right away, mm-hmm. but how to become more aware of your relationship or your own 
approach to it, I guess. Relational self-awareness is the approach that I have developed over you know, my years in this work. I am working on understanding the self mm-hmm. in the context of our most important relationships, you know, usually our intimate relationships. Like, who am I in this relationship? What is what is it about me that puts me at risk of misunderstanding my partner in these ways? Mm-hmm. Why am I triggered by this, not this? Why is my partner triggered by that, not that? So it's so it's understanding sort of our own internal template of fears and hopes and longings and wounds. Um, and so that that idea of like self-reflection in the service of the relationship. And I think it's not it's not necessarily something that our grandparents and great grandparents needed because intimate relationships used to be so role bound, you know, like be a yeah. good provider, be a good homemaker. But what we want today is something that is so much more intimacy based. We want to feel seen yes. and heard and understood. And so if we want that from somebody else, we have to provide that to ourselves as well and really, really, really keep ourselves in the ring. You know, it's so much easier to focus on what our partner does or doesn't do. And oh, so much yeah, for harder sure. to focus on like, <laughs> okay, why? So why does that behavior in my partner bother me? Not based on some objective truth, like four out of five people would agree. That's a dickish thing to do. No, it's about <laughs> what is it about me? What? How does it remind me of my dad, my mom, my early experiences? Mm. Like that's the work. Yeah. What would be some good tools for people to kind of start looking at themselves and their own, you know, relationship patterns? Yeah. I mean, the biggest, this isn't really a tool, but I guess it's more of a um, kind of a value that needs to guide self-work, which is just self-compassion. Because mm. this this work is hard. Like when we start on the path towards relational self-awareness, what we start to realize is that there have been some moments that we have not handled in particularly graceful or evolved ways because we've been in kind of a, you know, survival mode. So if we're going to start to look at our patterns, we have to commit to being self-compassionate and sort of using the Maya Angelou, when I know better, I can do better, you know, mentality. I love this check-in of like, how am I coming across right now? How am I being in this moment right now? Like just pressing pause during a conversation or an interaction with our partner and just holding up that mirror a little bit. What's my tone of voice? What's my body mm. posture? What's my stance? What's my angle? How approachable am I being? How <laughs> inviting am I being? You know, that's kind of like a kick you right in the gut sort of a, oh, yeah. just, you know, but, a, but a, a way of checking in because it's so easy to get focused on, on the other person. Oh, absolutely. I can just when you're talking, I'm like imagining myself, you know, in like an argument or in a conflict and having this full feeling of like, I'm not going to stand down or I need to defend myself or I'm here to make the other person see it my way instead of giving room to like, what about them? Right. Like, how does this invite like you said invite them in to share and probably not if i'm already in a defensive place i'm probably not going to invite my partner in to share anything (laughs) (laughs) no i will invite them to surrender really is what i will invite them to do (laughs) you also talked about infidelity it's very interesting 
because I also wanted to talk to you about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book called Taking Sexy Back, how to own your sexuality and create the relationship you want. In your opinion, how does sexuality play a role in relationships? And why do people often struggle, especially probably in long-term relationships, right? with, with keeping it alive and like having that, that intimacy? You know, the thing that I know for sure is that we, in our culture, we put love over here and sex over there. You know, we keep them pretty divided and we, and we don't, our, our conversations about sex, as you know, as an erotic writer, our conversations about sex are either about like titillation or taboo. I start with this idea um, in Taking Sexy Back and in my work around sexuality that our sexuality is just a part of self. It's just a, a part of the experience of being a human living inside of a body, you know, that this yes. is just a part of who we are and that our culture in all kinds of ways, family culture, religious culture, you know, pop culture kind of creates this like separation between me and my sexuality. And so I think all of us need some like reclamation and integration and healing. Um, and sure. then, you know, in sex ed, we don't grow up with, I mean, certainly I didn't have the sex ed that me I needed. Neither. To, no. <laughs> we all deserve to have like wholehearted education, information, conversation about sex, because if we don't, we end up acting it out in all kinds of ways, including, you know, infidelity. I think sometimes infidelity is an attempted solution to a problem of like, I don't know how to bring my full sexual self to my partner. And so I'm going to kind of split myself up in all these ways, you know? Yeah, I find it's interesting. I always thought with sexuality, how truly it is just a mirror of your relationship, right? Mm -hmm. The the emotional intimacy and uh, romantic intimacy are not really that different. I would think Mm -hmm. they just show you probably what's not being talked about or what's missing in like a connection. That's really well said. That's really well said. Yeah. But it's, I um I did a TED Talk a few years ago. And one of the points that I made in the TED Talk is like, I was trained by some of the, you know, best minds in the field around couples therapy. And I was literally taught that when you help a couple communicate better, the sex is going to resolve on its own. The sex will get better on its own. I was never taught that you have to go directly to talking about sex and sexuality with a couple mm. because your job over here. It'll just resolve over here. And that's not true because yeah. they are, they're mirrors back and forth, but there are ways in which we we need to be explicitly talking about our sexual relationship. Sex deserves its own kind of attention and tending and conversation rather than just assuming that it's going to get better, you know, by yeah. default. Yeah, I think that kind of never happens. <laughs> no, not so, much. I mean, <laughs> so what kind of questions could people ask themselves, maybe about their relationship and also their sexuality to kind of like a check in, right? If you feel like, okay, I'm in a rut in this relationship or we, we are fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. What would be like a good first step? Well, if we start with um, self-reflection and mm-hmm. you, you know, you can chime in here as the erotic writer. I (laughs) love the idea of somebody, you know, getting their journal and just sort of writing the story of their, what I would call their sexy, you know, in, in the Mm. taking sexy back book, you know, we made sexy, we turned sexy from an adjective into a noun, like your sexy is your sexual self. And so I love as a writing exercise, just a letter to one's sexual self, you know, or telling the story of the sexual self. What has it always been looking for? What is it craving? Mm. How do I lose sight of my sexy? How do I forget about my sexy? How do I connect? When do I feel most in touch with my sexy? 
What does my sexy need to feel celebratory, safe, connected, joyful? So I love that sort of gentle inquiry mm, that's so that cool. then creates a foundation for a curiosity about your partner because, because your partner also has this entire story of their sexuality that started long before you ever met them. <laughs> and it may be a story that's never been told, you know, either. So I like that. I like the sort of like my sexy, your sexy, and then leading into, okay, so if we've got these two stories, then what, how do they come together? Like, what are the synergies? What are the road, you know, how do we then understand with more gentleness, the ways in which we get tripped up, the ways in which we lose sight of each other? I see this um, a lot with people talking about the sexuality I think that it's so difficult to tell your partner what you actually want and what feels good if you've never even asked yourself, yeah. right? And I think we we hope that other people read our minds or that we'll have good sex if somebody else will be good in bed or whatever people imagine, you know? Yeah. Um, not even knowing what I could ask for, right? If this is what I need to feel safe, for example, I need to know that to or in order to be able to communicate. That's right. And we, and we so often, I mean, just as you're saying, because sex ends up feeling like it's something that's a performance, a performance mm-hmm. for a partner or a performance that proves something about our own worth or yes. our own attractiveness. We're focusing on what we need to be doing. We're not even tending to the really subtle pieces about the context or the setting or the, what do I need to do to understand about me? So I love that you're reminding listeners of that. I have my students do this. Um, I teach college students and I have them do oh, cool. do a, gui- a guided meditation <laughs> where they close their eyes and they imagine themselves in a really wonderful sexual situation, like one that they just consider really wonderful. And they sort of travel inside of their own, you know, to themselves and they're imagining what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What's their body feeling? Like really imagining like what do, how am I feeling in a really wonderful sexual experience? Because I think we oftentimes don't do that because we're focused on what we're doing or what our partner's doing or what our oh. partner is thinking about us or, you know, all of this. Yeah. And how we look like and like all oh, these how things. We look, how we sound, how we smell and all of this. It's so fascinating because obviously as everybody, I've had like my own journey, um, yeah. my own sexual journey. And I think for a long time, I just really, before I started doing this work, but I really didn't even know what I liked at all. I was just looking outside of myself being like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to like or Hmm? porn or society or you know friends telling like this is what you're supposed to like this is how you're supposed to be and then it's really a journey a journey of like who am i and what is mine and even with relationships right with the stigma maybe about couples therapy even i'm gonna be failing if i seek outside help and i think sex is very similar where we're supposed to know how to do this but nobody ever taught us Mm -mm. And yep. that's so interesting to me and yep. and such a self-defeating proposition, really. It is. And it's not it's not self-compassionate at all. Do you feel yes. like you have done a lot of your healing through your writing? Like when you are writing erotica for others, are you also healing yourself? Yes, that's how it started, actually. So I started writing erotica for myself for a while before I ever thought of publishing it. Mm. Yeah. So it really was like it was this this search for what is it that I need and what is my sexuality for me and not for my partner or not how it's supposed to look like, but truly also coming from like a not very satisfied point, you know, yeah. like there's something about 
not being able to orgasm easily and like feeling disconnected emotionally and then physically also. And writing really helped me to figure out, oh, this is something that's invigorating me or this turns me on uh-huh. and um, uh-huh. this is what I would like to happen, right? Like the fantasy aspect of it being so exciting because I can make up anything uh-huh. and I can try out everything before I even maybe even have to do it with a partner. I love that. Right. And you got, right. So you could even put, you could put as much distance as you needed to or wanted to because you're really writing about a character. So this is the character is interested in this. Exactly. Character is exper- <laughs> Uh-huh. I think that's beautiful. Yes. I I love I the when Taking Sexy Back first came out, my first um live event, a young woman raised her hand and she was like, I have started to write erotic fiction in order to heal my sexual self and I yes. want to start publishing, but I'm from a, you know, fundamentalist Christian family and you know, she was sort of like talking really? about the tension and would she have to use a pseudonym and how would she do this? But I was like, I couldn't even hear the rest of her question because I was so I was so blown away by like the this intuitive part of herself that knew to write as a way of healing herself, to write yeah. as a way of honoring herself, to write herself into, you know, integration. I thought that was just so brilliant and so something that just she knew to do. And it sounds yes. like that was for you also. You were like, I got to start somewhere. And this is oh, totally. the place to start. Mm-hmm. I think it's especially interesting when you come from a background that might be even a bit more extreme that, well, I mean, I had no sexual education, but I think in a sense of religion, right? That that yeah. really puts sexuality in a really terrible corner. Yeah. Yep. Where you then have to like really crawl out of this little hole that they dug for you, you know? That's right. That's right. It's not, you're not even starting from zero you're starting oh, no. from, from a hole in the ground right it's, yeah, it yeah, is, yeah i hear it. yeah years ago i was teaching at one of the um big military academies and a young cadet i mean he was whatever all of like 19 or 20 years old it was part of a sexual assault prevention conference and he raised his hand and he wanted to complain to me about how this military academy you know had set the the internet so that they can't get any porn and he was feeling mm. like that's maybe he was like a little bit worried that if there wasn't access to porn, did that actually increase the risk of sexual assault? You know, like he was thinking about that connection. And I was like, that's really interesting. But what I love actually is if you don't have access to any pornography, you actually have an incredible Mm. opportunity to just play with your own fantasies. And I, whenever I'm with young people, I'm always encouraging them to have some part of their masturbation and self-pleasure be without any external materials that really I want people to know how to kind of cultivate their own like inner naughty fantasy, you know, garden inside of their minds. Like I I actually think it was, you know, I sort of flipped it on him and I was like, I think you have actually a really cool opportunity to learn mm. about yourself and what really turns you on inside of your own mind rather than relying on somebody else's, you know, yes. vision for it. So I I traveled to Berlin last year and the cab driver was probably also around 20 or something and he was Muslim. And he asked me, he was like, what do you do for work? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, I'm an erotica writer and I run this like sexual (laughs) wellness platform. And he's like, oh, my God. And he was like, can I ask you some questions about sexuality that he had never asked anybody? And he was this like most fascinating, you know, because he has the Internet. You know what I mean? If he really would want to search, but he's even a little too timid to Mm -hmm. search on Google. 
mm-hmm. how to pleasure a woman was like the most important oh, thing. He's like, love that. so Good how can I make her come kind of? Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, what does she want? What does she like? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, why don't you just ask her? And he's like, I can't ask her. Uh-huh. But, you know, these like little things that we have that when you just get the opportunity to like hear you like someone like you talk at a military academy um, or run into somebody or as a cab driver in a taxi. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How how incredibly that can open up somebody just being like, oh, I can ask. Oh, I'm allowed 100%. to talk mm-hmm. to my partner, even if it's um, about. Like what you said about couples therapy, even it's about like, oh, I can I can ask my partner why they always get angry when right. I don't bring this home or if I forget to, to lock the door. I don't, I don't know. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. often to me anyways, or in my relationships, I feel like the fights are often about something very different, right? We fight about something small yeah. that just shows us that right. there's something else that's actually... I did a whole couples therapy session one time on a butter dish. You know, the couple had gotten into (laughs) a fight and it wasn't right. It was not like a knockdown drag out huge fight, but it was a, you know, a a thing that happened around a butter dish. And then, you know, you peel back the layers and Mm. it's about your family and my family. And And at one point, the husband's like, I cannot freaking believe that we're 40 minutes in on this butter dish. I was like, this is it. (laughs) This is the stuff, right? It is. It it, is just as you're saying it is. Sometimes in those seemingly menial kinds of things that big questions about, do you value me? Are we okay? Do I matter to you? Am I safe with you? Those are big questions that we ask around, you know, they play out around these things that seem small. Mm -hmm. How can couples create a safe space for each other to share what's actually going on? Yeah. To manage defensiveness. None of us like to feel misunderstood. And so in mm-hmm. part, it is incumbent on the person raising the issue to raise it gently, to manage their tone of voice, to lead with curiosity, to lead with affirmation, for sure, for sure, for sure. But it's also the job of the person who's hearing the feedback to just breathe, you know, like I'm like rocking my body right now, like mm-hmm. move your body, sip some water, <laughs> to know that like, this is a moment where you you're at a fork in the road. Your partner has just brought you, you know, some feedback. Your partner is disappointed. The fork in the road is I can stay calm and patient and present and that's going to be really helpful or I can defend and explain and rationalize and justify and that's going to create more distance. And then if and when you are able to be patient and present in the face of, you know, your partner's feedback, just celebrating the heck out of yourself, you know, just feeling yes. like that is so badass. It really is. Yeah. Wow. I think it really, I mean, it's so cool because you know how it feels like when you're in that moment. Yeah. It is really a feat to like, <laughs> it's a feat. Uh-huh. and it takes <laughs> to practice. Like yes. uh-huh. It takes practice and we're not always going to get it right. But when we do get it right, we really need to celebrate ourselves. When do you think is couples therapy? a great next step for a couple or when is it right for somebody? I love couples therapy around transition, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. deciding to move in together, getting engaged, getting married, getting ready to have a baby, you know, whatever that kind of turning point is. Turning points have a way of kind of kicking up dust, Mm -hmm. Um, either old dust between the two of us or old, old dust that has to do with, you know, family of origin stuff. So kind of having somebody, 
we we call it um, dose based therapy, like D O S E. Like you do a dose of therapy around this transition, and you go away for a nice. while, and then just whenever there's a feeling of like, I don't understand where my partner is coming from, or I don't feel understood by my partner, then bring in somebody who's trained to help people understand each other better. Um, yeah. yeah. Sometimes around an external stressor, like losing a parent, losing a job, mm-hmm. a medical mm-hmm. diagnosis, you know, those kinds of like transitions that aren't chosen. Um, yeah. It'd be good to have extra support. Yeah. And I also feel like um, I don't have a child myself yet, but I have a lot of friends and I feel like often when a couple has a child, there's like a, a phase yeah. in a relationship that's very that's challenging. <laughs> it's just like, I don't like only like 18 years or something. It's not a very long exactly. phase. <laughs> so 18 years of therapy, basically. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, I think yeah. that's an incredible tip. I haven't actually thought about it this way, but it makes sense because this is also where you kind of um, negotiate and navigate new ground, right? When you have a transition. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, research has shown that couples, there's a, a pretty reliable U-shaped curve in relationship satisfaction. When a couple has a baby, relationship satisfaction decreases. And when the couple launches that baby, relationship satisfaction increases. So it's a, Uh, you know, it is definitely the transition to parenthood is challenging. And then I like a low bar to couples therapy and it doesn't have to be forever. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and just, it's it's a way of nurturing your investment really. The dose aspect of it is so nice because like you said, then it's not like, oh, we're going to do this like for the next 18 Mm -hmm. years as I was joking, Mm -hmm. but we can just get support for this one thing that we can't solve or this one issue where I don't understand you. Um, Yeah. And I think we're so easy to have people help us in different aspects of our lives, right? Mm. Like a plumber, or <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, and you're yeah. like, oh, I'm gonna call a plumber and nutritionist, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. or a personal trainer or something like that. And then this is kind of the same thing; it's just for a different aspect of your life, right? Where the stakes are incredibly high. Yes, you know? and the investment is, really is so high. Yeah. Divorce is really expensive. Starting over is really, you know, and certainly I, I'm not anti-divorce. I know there are time, you know, endings don't have to be failures. But I think a lot of people would like to avoid, you know, I think we can, I think Uh we can support people who have divorced and are divorcing without saying it's something that is like necessarily desirable or aspirational, right? I mean, do people come to couples therapy sometimes to, to divorce or to break up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I oftentimes don't know that in the beginning. Like I think Mm -hmm. I have a couple in therapy, but really I have one person kind of dropping their spouse off in therapy, you know, they're just kind of like, they're not there, but they sort of feel like they need to check the box before they mm. you know before yeah. they kind of say it's over um and it may they might that may not even be conscious they might know mm. that they're really really shut down you know but yeah. they may be hoping they may have like a one percent hope that they might open up again um yeah sometimes it is too late and sometimes we don't know until we try well but you have to try right i mean endings like you said i think you even there's a post of yours was like endings are teachers yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's so true. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's probably worse if you haven't really tried everything because we learn even in the process of maybe it not the relationship doesn't make it right. But we've learned how to be able to listen to a partner sure, or share ourselves mm-hmm. in a different way. So it's never like a loss. That's right. And you're going to take yourself with you. You know, yes, yeah. you will take if you leave the relationship or the relationship ends, you are taking yourself with you. So you may as well learn something about who you were in this relationship. Mm. So that you kind of have a head start on your 
healing and recovery and growth, you know, in terms of moving on. So that's right. It's not, it's not wasted, you know, it's not wasted time. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what people could possibly like seek out when they go and find you online, which they can. <laughs> yeah, well, the the website is a really great, you know, it's become this really robust ecosystem of resources. And so there's a blog with, I don't know, over 100 different, you know, articles. Um, there's now a podcast that we're, I don't know, 70 something episodes in called Reimagining Love. Um, two books we've already talked about. A third book on the way um, in October. That's um, exciting. I uh, know it's so exciting. I haven't even talked about it yet on a show, so you're what you're is hearing it, it first. What is it about? Now that we, <laughs> it's called. Well, the book is called Love Every Day, and it's a 365 days of relational self awareness prompts and practices. Oh, I love it. Okay. And then there are e courses. So there's a course called Intimate Relationships 101, which is basically my undergraduate marriage 101 course. For the grown and sexy, you know, kind of a just foundational, comprehensive course to intimate relationships. And, and you then can do that a, together or you would do that yeah, individually. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Together, individually. There's lots of content and worksheets and resources. It's a really oh, robust, great. yeah, really robust offering. And then the other one is called Can I Trust You Again? And it is designed for couples where there's been a breach, whether mm. that's infidelity or deceit of some kind. And that course is also designed to be done individually or together to help couples figure out what a path towards possible reconciliation, restitution um, looks like. And that one also has videos and, um, and worksheets. In your experience, do a lot of people, can they heal from infidelity and move oh, forward? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It takes work and it takes time. It takes accountability, humility, risk. Mm. Um, but yeah, I have seen people build stuff from the ashes that makes me want to cry my eyes out. You know, it mm. just is, we're human and we're so messy. And some of us tend to learn things the hard way, you know, and some of us yeah. are really brave and, and can see, can hold shades of complexity that just, you know, are pretty astounding. It's not for everybody. You know, I think that if, if the key is, can the person who betrayed, can they get really, really, really deeply curious and and accountable and can they step into a kind of integrity that they perhaps didn't even know existed? That's really what it's predicated on. It's not, you know, the, yeah. the person who was cheated on being forgiving is certainly part of it, but really the rubber hits the road around like, what does the person who cheated, what do they want to learn, you know, about themselves mm. and about their partner from this? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having Such me. Such a were pleasure. Fun to talk to. We covered yeah. a lot of ground. Thank you guys so much for listening to our episode, How to Save Your Relationship. I hope you enjoyed exploring the secrets of sexual intimacy and satisfaction with me. You can find our guest, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, in the show notes. And remember to visit our website, talesoflara.com, for more valuable resources and tips to enhance your sexual wellness journey. If you like today's show, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. See you next Sunday. Until then, stay curious and keep exploring.